0: KDXI 100.3, it's time for Tips, Topics, Issues, and Positions, hosted by Dr. Bob Oxley from Dixie
1: State University. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Tips, Topics, Issues, and Positions. And today, uh, we're going to talk about uh, political ideology, and uh, specifically, uh, we're going to look at capitalism as opposed to socialism and it's my honor to uh, introduce to you my guest uh, interviewee today is uh, Professor Joe Green, who's a uh, faculty member of the Department of History and Political Science at Dixie State University. So welcome, Joe. Nice
0: to be here, Bob.
1: Yeah, it's going to be, uh, I understand you're the expert on campus, so I'm really fortunate to have you here. So I'm going to ask you some questions about capitalism and socialism. and But before we get started, uh, I'd like to do a little bit of a background as far as civilization and these political ideologies so that, uh, our listeners out here can understand uh, a little bit about uh, how these all have developed and emerged. So can you kind of give me a, a standard as to what aspects you would look at if you're sitting back and analyzing the world's population, how it's evolved to the point where we're at now and more importantly, uh, some of the political ideologies possibly how they have, have developed. In other words, uh, I remember you, some of your students telling me you always start with a standard. So I guess maybe that's where I'm going I'm to lay it off to you there.
0: Yeah. I think Aristotle had a nice standard for a well-lived life. He talked about human flourishing. Uh, sometimes that's translated as happiness, but uh, uh, basically human beings uh, getting along with each other, uh, and being able to enjoy their lives and not, not being in, uh, you know, instead of happiness, I heard one psychologist say once, we like to avoid anguish and pain. Um, and so that would kind of be the standard, you know, anything that uh, gets rid of the anguish and pain makes us healthier, uh, wealthier, uh, gives us knowledge Uh, that's usually what human beings mean by flourishing, I think.
1: Okay, so flourishing is a key word, right? Yeah, that
0: would be for me. That's going to be my standard.
1: (laughs) All right. If we look at two factors, um, life expectancy and wealth, and if we went back in time, um, life expectancy has increased, uh, but uh, is it a result of the political ideology or the culture or... Right. Um, if you go back
0: 200 year, just 200 years, okay. Uh, you find, uh, that, uh, life expect average life expectancy everywhere in the world was around 30 years is the average person would die. Uh, half of the, half of the people who were born uh, at a particular time would die 30 years later and half would live longer than that. Now it's 80 years. Okay. So, in some in in, and that 30-year number is fairly consistent all the way back through history okay sometimes a little higher but sometimes a little lower all right but fairly consistent on an average right up to around 1800 okay in certain countries in in the netherlands and britain uh, and then into northern europe the united states at the same time and then spreading to various parts of the world that life expectancy has risen, uh, in, but only in the last 200 years. And it's ridden, risen at an exponential rate in the last 200 years. So what we have is uh, a need to explain this, okay? Uh, and the explanation that, uh, that I think is the only thing that can do it is the rise of free market capital. I hate the word capitalism, but free markets, uh, free market system a system in which innovation is allowed, not just invention, the Chinese were great inventors, but they never became a uh, uh, innovative civilization. It was only in the Netherlands and England and then the United States and uh, other countries as time has gone on, that you have a society that sustains innovation that has made food cheaper and more plentiful, that's made clothing cheaper and more plentiful, that's made housing cheaper, Better, higher quality. I know we don't think it's cheaper, but uh, uh, it, you know, you know, we pay a a relatively large percentage of our income for our housing. But what we get compared to what your ancestors had 200 years ago is just magnitudes better than what they had available to them. Plus, they don't starve, they don't freeze to death, and they don't uh, die of heat exau- We don't die of heat exhaustion and and that kind of thing because. We're, we're able to control our climates. And so uh, those are the main things people worried about 200 years ago. Now, nobody in in certain countries worries about them
1: at all. Wow. What about, uh, with that, what you're just talking about, what about child mortality? Mortality? Mortality, I'm sorry. Right. And you, 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 the, the child mortality rate, is that... Pretty much been constant, or are we do we see changes because of improved yeah, health? Yeah, the the
0: one of the there there are two primary reasons why lifespans have, have, have gone from thirty to eighty in the last two hundred years, and one is kids don't die anymore, uh, nearly the rates that they used to. Uh, one, you know, out of every hundred kids born two hundred years ago, forty-three died before they were five. Okay, one in five women died, died in childbirth. Okay, it you know, so if, you, if you're a woman and you had five kids, odds are you're going to die. And one of those, and uh, families were way bigger, as you know, in those days, lots of women died in childbirth. And that's because we didn't have medical knowledge, we didn't have science. And the reason that we didn't have good, sustained, innovative science is because we didn't have the money, we couldn't generate the surplus funds necessary so that some people could go off and be scientists and other people could go off and be doctors and experiment and figure out what was causing disease and what was, uh, what malnutrition is and, and uh, what nutrition is and all of the other things that allow kids to live now. So that, uh, in the whole world now, only six kids out of a hundred will die before they're five rather than 43.
1: Wow. That's amazing. Um, this is going to sound like a strange question. If you look back at uh, historically the uh, homicide rate, okay, as far as deaths were concerned, if we look back, is it that was the homicide rate as we know it, uh, was that part of the population control? That's why we didn't see the expansion that we see today? or?
0: Yeah, I think uh, that the modern world, free-market capitalism, democracy, science, uh, creates, a, creates a world in which uh, uh, people don't have to worry about where the next meal's coming from, their kids starving, uh, and other kinds of, of, of subsistence concerns that people had. And it, for the last 700 years, this is even before 200 years ago, which is kind of the focus we're gonna be on today, but. For seven hundred years, the homicide rate—the rate at which violence of one group, one person to another person, or one group of people to another group of people—has been falling. Okay. Now, Dr. Pinker at Harvard has a really nice book, *The Better Angels of Our Nature*, where he documents statistics that show how this this is going on. But it's certainly a characteristic of the last two hundred years that. Uh, 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 the number of wars that an individual person might expect to see in their lifetime has declined. Some of our wars have been really horrible as you know, in the last century, but for the individual person is less likely to see someone attacked violently, killed violently, uh, to see blood, to see someone dead because of uh, either uh, government action, executing someone for, uh, what we would consider silly crimes now—people were executed for stealing a horse, for stealing a bread, uh, and so on. 200 years ago, all of that. Uh, somehow, we've we've gotten beyond that. And while uh, the news media is filled with uh, uh, murders that occur and school shootings and uh, in Chicago and Detroit, uh, if we look historically, the rate is really really fallen.
1: Well oh, that's amazing. I never would have thought that because I, what we're hearing on the news and what just transpired in, in Florida and, yeah. uh, and the murder rate in Chicago and things of that. Sort in, sort. in
0: the United States, there's a little blip starting in 2015. Uh, and we don't know if that'll be sister, but, but compared to world history, it's a little blip. It's, it's not anywhere near the number that someone 304, the number of violent deaths someone three or four hundred years ago would have experienced in their lifetime. And these are lifetimes that only lasted an average of 30 years rather than 80 like we have.
1: That's true, too. Um, I've got a question for you. Okay. What about the uh, world per capita GDP? Has that improved? Are more people falling into uh, areas whereby their purchasing power has increased?
0: This, this is the uh, kind of the key to my argument about flourishing because we have in my view uh, increased our flourishing the the, uh, our, our, uh, uh, the the meaningfulness that we're able to have in our lives in the last 200 years because per capita income, has been on, has has gone from uh, no change, for uh, as far back as the economic historians can measure. Okay, yeah. I can show you, I can show you the books. Okay, where for most of history, people lived on three dollars a day. Wow, well, going all the way back. And three dollars t- a day. Three dollars a day. Okay, now you have to modify that because uh, in historically, uh, there was really bad income inequality, and it was an income inequality based on status that, it, that, that existed during most of that time. That is, there was a priest class, or there was an aristocratic class, or there was a warrior class uh, that owned most of the land, and for all of that period, land was wealth. Um, you got, uh, the more land you had, the wealthier you were, the more tenants that you could extract rents from. And so uh, since most of the land in most places that we're aware of was owned by this, uh, a small set of elites, sometimes as, as, uh, as low as, you know, 10% of the population owning 80, percent of all of the wealth that existed in, in the society. Uh, and that was hereditary. Okay. Until the next army came in and conquered. And then there was a new set that was hereditary. You would have to expect that the 80 or 90% of the population that weren't in that particular group were living on, on even less, okay, like $100 a day, where if you go to uh, some parts of, of uh, Equatorial Africa, you find people living on $300 a year, which is about about a dollar a day. There are places in India where you can go and find people living on less than a dollar a day, about $300 a year. Well, that's the way yours and my ancestor you know, my great, 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 great grandfather and grandmother, all the way back through whoever my progeny were back there, uh, uh, lived. They, they, they lived on, on that kind of an income. Uh, and that meant that uh, they didn't bathe. They were filthy and stinky and disease-ridden. Uh, it meant that they lived in houses that... Uh, were basically four walls and some sort of vegetation for a roof. Uh, mo- almost nobody would have had a floor, uh, like made out of planking or, or 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 stone or something like that. It would have been ground, real ground. Yes, <laughs> and that means that you would have been swamped, just simply inundated with vermin and mice and rats and all, all, all kinds of other things. The animals that you're raising in order to stay alive are oftentimes in your house or certainly around your house. And so you're, the mud you're tropping through is not like the mud you and I tromp tra- through when, on those occasions when we have to. I mean, this is filthy stuff and it's full of disease. And probably one of the reasons that people died is this is in their water. This, is, this is, uh, gets into their food supply. Uh, they're being uh, uh, bitten by the rats and the mice. Uh, that carry disease, and uh, uh, the fleas and the ticks and the bed bugs and and the lice. Uh, there's a story of the Duke of Wellington. This is uh, you know about 150 years ago. Um, uh, one of the rich people in in, in England uh, uh, pulling his bed mattress back and seeing just just a swarm of bed bugs under there. Okay, uh, that uh, that you and I just don't have experience with anymore because we have ways of dealing with all of that. We live exceptionally clean. Okay. And that's again, that's why people live to be 30. That's why, you know, if you live to be 40, your teeth fell out. Most people past 40 had no teeth. There were no dentists. There was no uh, oral hygiene. There was no, it wasn't, there was no nutrition. It was not understood at all. And so it was a horrible thing. 200 years ago, that changed. Okay. And average incomes began slowly. Okay. Gradually. Uh, if you, if you chart, if you take a chart and put 1800 and take it, take it to now, you see kind a gradual exponential curve. Now, I think you, uh, you know what that means, but, but it's kind of flat initially, getting steeper and steeper and until it's really steep. But if you look at one showing world history uh, 10,000 years ago, right up to now, this this change looks like an absolute hockey stick, oh. which is what they call it, okay. okay? It's the hockey stick diagram when incomes, average incomes for everybody begin to rise. And they've continued to rise for the past 200 years. And the net result is? that you get to have a bath every day. You get to have a floor in your house. You don't have uh, all kinds of vermin and stuff crawling around in your house. Uh, You get to drive around in a car rather than uh, ride around in a uh, uh, horse drawn vehicle, if you could have afforded it. And most couldn't. Uh, And uh, uh, you know, you get to have a cell phone. You get to, uh, you know, uh, just the, the range of things you get. You get to uh, eat on 6% of your income, whereas if you live in uh, poor areas of India, you pay upwards of 60% of wow. your income for food. Okay. That's interesting. So uh, uh, something happened, and I say that something was the invention of the modern world, primarily free market, a free market system uh, that allowed uh, people to be innovative for the first time in history, not... Inventive, innovative—that is, you find something that makes life better, and you're able to modify it, and modify it, and modify it, and you're not stopped from modifying it, uh, so that you you eventually get something that uh, that makes our life more flourishing, if you will, ah, to use
1: the word. There you go. There's the flourishing. In other words, yep. you're you're happier. Uh,
0: you know, I, you, you have to be kind of careful because I'm talking about material, an increase in in our material well-being, okay. and the pushback against that is, you know, consumerism and materialism, and uh, isn't necessarily making us more flourishing people. My claim is that it does. That when your kids live, when they don't die, before they're four years, before they're five years old, when they get to live and you get to watch them go to school and be educated. Uh, when you get to live to be 80 and see uh, the, the world pass you by and you don't experience famines and you don't experience mass pestilences that kill off people all of the time and you don't have some invading army come through and, uh, and cause all of the kind of havoc, that, uh, the horrible havoc that, that those kind of armies did. And my ancestor could, could expect to experience that, Okay. And I don't have any expectation of experiencing that. That's a better world to live in. That's a more flourishing world to live in. I get to make my living reading books and thinking about the world and only having to work eight hours a day and uh, uh, being able to watch to listen to the greatest music that the world has ever seen from any age that I want to. My ancestor couldn't do that. I can travel anywhere in the world relatively inexpensively. My ancestor had no chance. My ancestor uh, usually didn't go more than five miles from their home in their whole life, okay? Uh, I get to read the greatest books that have ever been written in all cultures and and, and, and try and experience what they've had. And I can see on my television, even if I can't go there, what it's like to be in London or what it's like to be in Bangkok, okay? Uh, I think that's a flourishing existence. And sure, it's a lot of material that I'm, that I'm doing here, okay? And uh, maybe there's some silly things that people make for us that we can buy and so on. But, uh, but I think the material well-being is clearly as, uh, associated in most people's minds, okay, in the way that they live with a more flourishing life, a more meaningful happy life. Okay. That, that would be the, the thesis that I would take.
1: Um, let me ask you a question then. In 1949, Mao Zedong comes into China and he implements uh, the Communistic Party, kicks out the uh, former regime, they head out to Taiwan. So if we look at it from a political ideology standpoint and all the great things that you just brought up, how wonderful life is, Um, My understanding is that through a series of uh, controls that Mao instituted in that country, um, that these people did not have uh, anything flourishing since 1949. Now, I just want you to grab onto this. Now, Mao Zedong is no longer in power, and we have a new leader, and the bamboo curtain has come up, and all these Western ideals are— going into China and we're seeing a middle class being formed. Is this part of flourishing and does the government really play that much of an influence, whether or not a population flourishes or not?
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. A government can really make things go bad if they want, if they, they make the decision to, Uh, at the same time that this free market system that I'm describing was getting underway. Uh, there was a reaction against it. Okay. Uh, primarily uh, by what we now call the Romantic movement, okay, uh, who did think that uh, the rise in material prosperity, the gradual rise in material prosperity, uh, was not to be praised. Uh, it was uh, it was uh, getting people to live in uh, congested in cities. They saw they saw, and in the early in the early part of this, that that indeed was part of what was going on. Uh, and they tended to think that something human was being lost in the way that uh, the, the free market system uh, and uh, at that point, the early industrial revolution w- was un- unpacking and they thought that uh, something better uh, could come along. They, their, their main criticism, uh, uh, was this materialistic criticism, but they also believed that uh, all the free market was doing was establishing a new class system, uh, that we'd replaced the uh, master serf medieval system uh, with an equally bad uh, owner-worker uh, system uh, in which workers were being exploited. That is, uh, the workers produced the value, they said, and the owners, because they own the property, uh, simply took most of it, but by the fact that they own the property, so the workers are producing huge amounts of value and having it taken from them uh, by the by the legal political system, and and uh, given uh, legal stealing, in other words, uh, to the uh, owner class, the. Uh, the capitalists is the way Karl Marx addressed it. That's where the word capitalism comes from. This is the system that's good for the the owners of things.
1: Yeah, let me, let me, just a minute. You just said that Karl Marx actually was the first one to define capitalism? Yeah. He's the one that invented the name. <laughs> that's amazing.
0: All right. Okay.
1: I got my shock uh, for the day. Uh,
0: here's another one for you. Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto is the first person to – Uh, to describe this rising prosperity that I'm talking about. Now, this is in 1848. It was just barely getting 50 years old. He's the first one to notice and describe it, and he describes it wonderfully. It's uh, in that book. But uh, uh, at any rate, the idea then was uh, that uh, the free market system uh, was an evil system, an unjust system, and it required... Uh, the intervention of a uh, a benign, well-meaning government uh, to establish a more just system in which uh, the value that was being created by the workers went to the workers, a uh, workers-oriented state. And that's the origin of uh, what you're talking about, which is Marxist Marxist vision of socialism. There's a whole bunch of visions of socialism, but uh, that's the one that got put into play in Russia in uh, starting in 1917, but especially uh, when Stalin did his collectivizations in 1920, starting in 1927, and uh, then Mao came to China, and and started it. Now, when Mao came to China, let's remember, things were not flourishing nicely there. Um, they'd had a uh, hundred years of horrible uh, dislocations, uh, a war in the 1850s, a kind of rebellion that had killed upward of 20 million people. Uh, then the Japanese came and many, many 20 million, something like that. Chinese may have died at the hands of the Japanese and in the, in the starvation and all of that happened then. Uh, and the government that they pushed out, the Republican or nationalist government under Chiang Kai-shek was uh was not a benign government in, in the, in the Western sense, it was extremely corrupt and uh, not doing much for the people. And, uh, and uh, if you just looked at it at the point, you know, good riddance is uh, the way that most people would've, would have, would have, would uh, have, uh, characterized it. Uh, but Mao made things really, really bad. Okay. Uh, he attempted collectivization, uh, right away when they got there, that is, uh, common property. Common property has two big problems that the socialists have never been able to escape, okay? It invariably, when, when things are common, especially when you're not dealing with people who are loved ones in a family, okay? Sometimes uh, a common system can work when people have deep love and respect for one another, but that's always a really small group. That can be involved in something like that, and even those. Okay, uh, uh, some of the utopian experiments that were run in early America, uh, it, 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 that were done by people absolutely committed to this common, common system, ended up not uh, not working. And there, the, the, the two problems that always arise um, are, are number one, the incentive problem. Uh, there's, there, there seems to be something in human nature, if there, you know, Dr. Smith-Larman would cringe at, <laughs> at that idea, that there's so, but uh, it just seems to happen. You can't seem to socialize out of people. The idea that if I work hard and create uh, uh, goods and services that I, and I need them for my family, and you say, no, it's going to be for the good of the whole, that I don't get some resentment and that resentment builds into a, a willingness to kind of semi go on strike against the system. It's the economists call this the incentive, okay? If the incentives aren't right, people don't work as hard and you end up getting less stuff. And so you don't get an economy that creates uh, increasing amounts of goods and services and you sure, clearly don't get one that is innovative uh, when you use a common property system, at least so far, uh, the experiments that we've run, and we've run a lot. They've been disasters, and uh, that hasn't happened. And the second one uh, is uh, uh, the social scientists call it moral hazard. Moral hazard means that people take more than and, and more. And if 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 you put out something and say, "Okay, we're going to distribute this so that everybody has some," the incentive is to take more than your share to get more to uh, to behave in such a way that you increase the risk to society rather than decrease the risk to society because there's this guarantee that, uh, that if your behavior goes bad, then, uh, then uh, Big Brother, the government, or whoever's running things will step in and, and make it right. So people, uh, there's, a, there's a place in Texas that's been flooded by, when the hurricanes come through, that's been uh, flooded badly five times. Uh, in the last 50 years, and each time federal government has come back in and rebuilt their houses. So what do they do? They build their houses in the floodplain, uh, because they're and a similar kind of thing. Uh, we don't have time to do this now. You can do this another time if you want. But um, in 19, in 2008, uh, the, the, the a system was set up in which banks were, lo- were making really horrible mortgages. Okay. And those horrible mortgages were all being collated uh, at Fannie and Freddie and then farmed out, sold out as uh, a kind of uh, uh, of financial instrument. I don't know if you wouldn't call it a bond and you wouldn't call it a stock or, or whatever. Uh, Fannie and Freddie had 50% of those.
1: Okay. And that was the bundled housing. Is that what? Yeah. You know, that's what?
0: where they bundled all the mortgages together. Gotcha. Okay some bad, some good. And the idea is some physicists had worked it out that the, the good ones would take care, w- would generate enough revenue to cover the bad ones if they went under. But all the bad ones were in balloon loans. And uh, when the price of housing started going up so that you couldn't refinance your house at a lower interest rate, when the price of housing started to decline in 2006, then these things started to go under. Uh, the 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 people who had gotten mortgages they couldn't afford were just paying; their payment was going on the interest and nothing to the to the principal, and gradually that that uh, that rose up through these mortgage securities so that they they were becoming worthless. And once they became worthless, okay, even though there were houses in them at that point, nobody would buy them. Then the rules said that the the company had to declare that as valueless. And so Lehman Brothers overnight was bankrupt, okay? And uh, uh, when Bear Stearns went under, four months before that, we bailed them out when that happened. When Lehman came, we didn't. And uh, that sent the idea that, hey, the government's not going to bail all of these out. And they all started collapsing. And then, uh, as as you know, know, President Bush and Nancy Pelosi bailed them out. President Obama kept bailing, bailing them out, and uh, the net result is uh, there's some evidence that the banks are still doing this.
1: There's the hanging out of the money. Uh, ben Bernanke was uh, making a decision. He said the idea was to let uh, Lehman Brothers go down, and that'll that'll serve as a lesson for all those other people yes. in the oh, same business. Right. Right. Yeah. It didn't work.
0: It didn't work. No. Well, that was that was a moral hazard, and socialism has that problem. Plus, uh, the socialists are idealists. They think they can create uh, uh, social systems in their heads and you can make them and apply them to uh, to a society and make the society work better, okay? Even though you've never experimented with it, you've never tried it. So in 1958, Mao tried something called the Great Leap Forward. And the idea was that we, they, he was going to industrialize. Uh, Stalin had done this by mass-murdering 10 million Ukrainian peasants, starving them to death, stealing all their food, trading it for into Germany for industrial might, and that's where the the beginning of, of Soviet industry came. And then putting together with slave labor of uh, the rest of the people in Russia who were in the Soviet Union who uh, weren't lucky enough not to be in the Ukraine and have died, okay, uh, when... Uh, when they finally opened up the gulags, it's estimated 50% of the population was in gulags. Wow! Okay? And so uh, Mao tried; he was going to industrialize, but they were—he we, was going to do it in a decentralized way, not a centralized way. And so they they uh, they sent out the cadres to have all of the peasants uh, build little ovens in their backyard and melt down their farming implements, uh, and then create industrial. Uh, steel production, they would produce their own steel and, and uh, this would be kind of the way that they did it. Well, then in 1959, nobody had farming instruments and you couldn't plant. And it caused a famine that killed, the estimate is 30 million people starved to death in the next two years. And now, after this, the, uh, the rational people, Deng Xiaoping and some others, uh, kind of forced Mao to the background Mao wasn't done. He came back in, uh, in uh, when was it, 1968 is what I'm thinking. I can't remember the dates of the Cultural Revolution. It was 10 years. 68 to, so, that's not right. 62 to in the 60s. 62 to 72 sounds right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so at this point, uh, you know, you just took all of, all of the high school and college students and give them a little red book and tell them they're in charge. And uh, go find your elders and, uh, and make sure they're toeing the line. And if they're not, we're sending them out. Uh, you know, we're going to put dunce hats, uh, caps on them and, or, and send them out into the countryside. And you lost a whole generation of really talented Japanese people, Chinese people, who, uh, who, who were just in limbo for, for 10 years. Yeah. So all of that was really bad. Then Mao died. Uh, in 1970, in 1974, 76, and Deng Xiaoping eventually emerged. This guy, who had, by the way, in the Cultural Revolution, he was demoted and sent to the countryside to work in a truck factory. And while he was working in the truck factory, he realized how badly the Chinese the Chinese system was working. And so, when he got there, he said, "We're going to go out and see what, how the rest of the world is." taking care of people. And suddenly these Chinese communists who'd been wandering around in the back country for 30 years went to the United States and they went to Japan and they went to to Europe and they saw wealth that was unimaginable to them and they said, we want this. And so gradually first in agriculture and then in special economic zones built around certain coastal cities Uh, they simply said, okay, if you, if you can make a profit, make a profit and you'll get to keep it. Okay. Uh, we're not going to, uh, have rules and regulations that suppress anybody from starting a business if they want to, you don't have to go ask permission. You don't have to get 500 forms filled out. Just start one. There was some guy who, uh, was running around begging for food who figured out that he could sell, uh, sunflower seeds that are baked or fried in some way that the Chinese really like. And five years later, he's a millionaire, you know, <laughs> which is nobody was a millionaire in Mao's China. And the net result was that their stand, their uh, average incomes started to rise in the 1980s. Okay. Uh, and they, they reached the threshold where that curve turned from flat to steep Okay, fairly quickly, way quicker than the, than the United States and Great Britain, especially Great Britain did. So that in the last 15 years, a billion people, most of them in China, some of them in India, have gone from absolute destitute poverty of the kind I was describing 200 years ago of my ancestor into a middle-class existence that is a house running water, running hot water, uh, garbage on the street that the truck comes and picks up car in the garage uh, wealth in the last 15 years. It's the greatest decrease in inequality the world has ever seen. It's happened in the last 15 years. Okay. World equality is going, inequality is going down right
1: now. Wow. So. Uh, let me ask you a question about China since we're still on that, before we move on. Uh, when Ping took over, he implemented a, uh, one child per family policy. Um, and that's just been lifted. But what, in your estimate, did that have? I mean, obviously, we had wonderful things going on here, but the male uh, to carry on the family name was so important. Um, did, did that have a, any kind of an effect on the economics? Or they were trying to control the population. I think they broke the code from an economic standpoint, we can put together this wonderful strategy, but we have to be able to control our population. Yeah. What's they, your uh, feeling on that?
0: Um, that's more in your field, Bob, in the sociology aspect of it. And I, I just know marginal stuff about it. I've heard that there are 57 men uh, to 50, about 50%, 57% men to about 43% females. But I read recently that it may not be as bad as that. Uh, We do know that uh, there were some families who aborted or exposed female children because they thought that they they needed a male in order to deal with things. Uh, This is what I can tell you. When you get economic growth, the fertility rate declines. There's almost like a one-to-one correlation with economic growth and the fertility rate. And part of the reason is... uh, If you live at a subsistence level, when you get old, you're gonna need somebody to take care of you. Therefore, you need to have lots of kids so that since only four out of 10 are gonna survive, there's somebody left who can bring you into their home when you get old, okay? Uh, So uh, the older societies uh, tended to have uh, very high fertility rates. Uh, When you get get rich, then you can have uh, uh, things like a 401k and so on so that uh, now when people reach that those kinds of ages they're normally able to take care of themselves uh, in fact they're use, usually uh, quite well off because they have a huge amount of equity in a house You normally not everybody but they do and uh, uh, there are usually social programs in, in, in advanced countries to take care of them and so there's not this, uh, this driving impetus to have the next child um, Another thing mom isn't at ho- home anymore no. and mom kind of likes not uh, washing you know taking all, all day Monday to wash the clothes down waiting in the river and and uh, dealing with it that way and uh, uh, you know modern science comes along and figures out how all this works and so the birth control methods get really really uh, a lot better and so, uh, wealthy countries, just all of them. In fact, some of them are having uh, uh, real problems with the birth dearth, okay? That is their their uh, populations are not replacing themselves. In Russia, in Greece, in uh, some Eastern European countries, it's as low as 1.2 children per family. And uh, uh, But don't worry, we're in Utah. <laughs> uh, where we're still just a little bit above replacement. And the United States has been fairly lucky uh, in recent years in that uh, we've had uh, a lot of immigration that, uh, because you do need young people in a community, in a nation to keep the infrastructure and uh, you know, the factories and the, and, and the businesses and the food growing and all of that. And we've been able to do that through primarily through immigration uh, and that, uh, so that we don't have some of those same kind of problems that they're having in some of the European countries. Wow.
1: Well, uh, we're almost out of time, but we've only, got, I've only gotten through about one half of the questions that I have for you. So can I impose upon you and ask, would you be available to come back for our next show? And oh, of
0: course, Bob.
1: I'm <laughs> I happy. I appreciate that. I'm happy to come back I, and talk I, to you anytime. I, uh, you, you just uh, are loaded with information, and I, I I had a list of questions that I wanted to talk to you, and we really didn't get into your position. Is and, and We've got some, some idea as to why capitalism, your position is superior to socialism, but I want to give you more of an opportunity. There's some other questions I want to dig into, and if you would- Uh, agree to this that would be wonderful and I'd like to uh, call this our part one of capitalism superior to socialism and then have professor Joe Green come back and join us uh, next week are you available sir I am thank you all right Uh, ladies and gentlemen uh, this was uh, professor Joe Green um, and the uh, topic was uh, looking at government ideologies and specifically uh, capitalism versus socialism and uh, uh, Professor Green has adopted the position that capitalism is indeed superior to socialism. Uh, so uh, stay tuned. Uh, we're going to bring uh, Professor Green back uh, next week, and we're gonna continue on in part two of, of this uh, taking a look at capitalism versus socialism. And uh, in the meantime, uh, please uh, have a safe and enjoyable uh, week. And don't forget that we uh, air this program. We rebroadcast on Saturdays and Sundays at 6 p.m. on KDXI 100. So have a good day, everyone. And this has been Tips, Topics, Issues, and Positions. Thank you very much.